The reading for this morning is found in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is God's word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. That experience occasioned me to think about uh, one of my own first experiences with the pulpit committee. It was for University Baptist Church of Austin, Texas, and there was a member of that committee who was particularly uh, consecrated and godly and impressive as a man, James Anderson. He was a retired professor of classics from Vanderbilt University, where our own Daniel Lee will be going in a few weeks now, this fall. Dr. Anderson asked a question to me in the interview process I'd never entertained before. He said, why did Jesus speak so much about the kingdom of God and the church so little? It was a great question. Uh, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God incessantly. He taught about it. He was focused on it. I had no answer that day and said so. The concept of the kingdom of God was critical to Jesus, and because of that, it should be critical to us as well. When Jesus talks about the new birth being born from above to Nicodemus in the third chapter of John, he goes on to say that is not an ends, but a means. And it's important for personal salvation, it's important to be saved, so that... And he says it twice, so that you can enter the kingdom of God. Now the Beatitudes deal directly with the kingdom of God. They open and close. They are framed by the promise of entrance into the kingdom. We have, uh, in our journey through the Gospel of John, gotten to the 18th chapter, and we are beginning there with events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus They can be considered and entertained at any time during the year, but I've decided to put 18 and 19 and 20 off, uh, God willing, until the spring and events working up to Easter. I want to go through the book of Romans sometime, but perhaps the next stretch, some shorter series. And so I propose for the next four times I'm with you to look at the Beatitudes, uh, eight or nine of them, depending on how you count But if we count them as eight and two doubled, uh, we'll look at a couple each week. The first four could be said to have to do with entrance into the kingdom. And the last four or five, depending on your counting, could be said to have to do with characteristics of the transformed life in the kingdom. So first, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes have a gospel shape. They come with a great announcement of news. 
Blessed are you. It's the good news of the gospel. Blessed are you. The dictionary defines blessedness as being divinely or supremely favored, fortunate, blissfully happy, or contented. In the Greek language, the word could be translated fairly flatly as happiness, but whether or not Jesus was speaking in Greek, which he could have been, or Aramaic, which he probably was, or Hebrew, which he could have, underneath everything is a Hebrew base. And there in passages like Proverbs, the third chapter and the 13th verse, we hear, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom. His ways are pleasant ways, and all his paths are peace. Hebraically, blessedness is amidst all the, the potential confusion that could surround you, finding the right path, the way which is directed, takes you somewhere which is meaningful and purposeful. If you are blessed, you are on life's right path. J.R.R. Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings has an occasion in the midst of all the exciting and dangerous adventures between Frodo and Sam. Uh, Sam says something optimistic and encouraging and positive, and Frodo lets forth this deep, joyous laugh, as uh, Tolkien writes, as had not been heard in the country for a long time. And then Frodo speaks about why he laughs, and he says, Sam, you, you speak as though you know the end of all things. You speak as though you know the way the story has been written. Christians are blessed because we do know the end of the story. We, uh, if there are two basic plots, tragedy and comedy, the Christian plot is comic because comedies always turn out well. We know the end of the story and whatever trials and tribulations and twists and turns life is going to take, we know life's destination. And the Beatitudes are the invitation to be on the path, the right path. Laughter springs from the sudden awareness that life is as it should be and that we are blessed. It is the recognition that the powers that are against us, though they may be great, are simply overwhelmed by the power that is with us and which is for us. One of my friends said early this week, or possibly last week, because I've been involved in camp all week long, he said being in the center of God's will is not necessarily the safest place. Of course, in the long view, it is the safest place, but in the short view, it can indeed invite and does invite great opposition. Being in the center of God's will is not necessarily the safest place, but it is, he said, the best place. To be blessed is to know you are where you are supposed to be, that you are on the right road. So the Beatitudes, two of which we'll look at this morning, constitute the beginning of what is perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes are both baffling and exciting at the same time. 
Jesus says things, I think, intentionally to throw us off guard. Jesus is a master teacher. And he knows that a technique of master teaching, maybe no technique, maybe the definition of teaching itself, is to combine things which are understandable and things which take us to deeper, newer places. When Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus, he speaks about being born again and born anew. And that is something which is initially understandable to us on the one side. And on the other side, we know also invites us into almost inexhaustible depths. The Beatitudes do that. They startle us. They surprise us. They confuse us. They bewilder us. They are simple words, and yet they are startling. Uh, Jesus is not so much, I believe, describing a collection of people in the Beatitudes. Well, some are poor, and some are mourning, and some are persecuted, and all of these different concatenations of people are gathered together in my church. No, not so much. I think the Beatitudes are a thread. They are an invitation to a process and to a journey which one person is invited. The order is very significant, and they take us along on this great journey. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. Um, the statement that the meek should inherit the earth is very far from a meek statement. The Beatitudes are violent statements in the sense of doing violence to reason and probability. Most critics who are offended by the things Jesus says are offended precisely because Jesus does not utter cheap platitudes. The Beatitudes are a frontal assault, a frontal challenge on almost everything we think we know about the way the world is. Success, blessedness, and the Beatitudes are reserved for those people who are on the right path, whose life has been characterized by a relationship with the Lord, who is the shepherd, who is leading them on the way. When David Gill was with us possibly three years ago now. He taught on the Beatitudes, and he translated this first word, blessedness, as good for you. Congratulations, you're on the right path. You are nothing other and nothing less than people who are on the way to entering the kingdom. So very quickly now, two, uh, two of the Beatitudes, they are a sequence of related attributes and first comes the attribute of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Matthew. Blessed are the poor, says Luke. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While uh, this might be the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning obviously takes place in a valley. It starts with an experience of people who feel anything other than being on a mountaintop. This kind of goes in the grain of our culture. Ours is a self-help culture. The words are 
vivid and they ring in our ears. Believe in yourself. You have what it takes. Develop your potential. Stop listening to all the negative tapes in your mind. One way of thinking at the outset of the Beatitudes is that Jesus is saying something quite different. Wait. Listen to those nagging doubts. Listen to some of the negative things. Reinhold Niebuhr, a great American theologian, said that our basic sin as Americans, as human beings, is God Almightiness, our desire to make ourselves God. And in his classic book on the Beatitudes, Ralph Sockman described these attributes of pride. He said the problem of pride is, and I quote, pride shudders the mind, it closes it off, it stops things. It locks the heart. It weakens the hand. It corrupts the conscience. Jesus says you can't go anywhere on the journey and adventure into the kingdom if you don't start with poverty of spirit. Unless you have come to the point where you say, I can't help myself. My problems are beyond my ability to solve them. I need something or someone from beyond. I need a Savior. That's the starting point. That's what it means to be poor. Now, I imagine there could be some uh, voices which would say, that's very, very unhealthy. Uh, that is uh, fostering a low self-esteem. And perhaps that's something to be addressed in a different time and a different spot. As a matter of fact, I will in a moment. But let's remember that the most successful um, group that has dealt with addition, addictions, Alcoholics Anonymous, starts with the translation of this same step and all the other 12-step groups that have grown from it. We are powerless over our problems. My problems are beyond me. The first step to recovery is the recognition of poverty of spirit. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it. Jesus knew that the Pharisees, who were of a nature, I think, I think he had some appreciation for some aspects of the Pharisees, but that aspect of them that said we are so righteous, we are so successful that we are thankful for it, closed the door to the kingdom of God for them. It was publicans and prostitutes and those who were poor who had the door thrown often and open. Church of Laodicea, the glorified and risen Jesus, says to her, you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Poverty of spirit is the beginning of the journey into the kingdom. Now, cautions. I know we have to be careful. Of course, Jesus is not saying, don't care for yourself. Hate yourself. 
Shakespeare and Henry V wrote, Self-love, my liege, is not so vile a sin as self-neglecting. While we regularly think too much of ourselves, we can, of course, commit the opposite sin of thinking too little of ourselves, And that's why I'm so impressed with the balance of Jesus Christ. Uh, he calls people to a healthy self-esteem. He calls it out of them to deep, centered, balanced lives. He sees in the uncautious Peter a rock on which he can build the church. He sees in possibly wayward Mary Magdalene or one Mary in Scripture. He sees in her a woman of faithfulness and purity. He sees in persecuting Paul a man who will become a missionary to the Gentiles. He sees in Matthew a tax collector, a faithful disciple. He sees in thieving Zacchaeus, a person who can be trusted to administer a great justice. He sees in the questions of the doubting Thomas, a man who will go forth with bold and adventurous faith. He sees all these things. So he does call out of our poverty of spirit souls which are centered and balanced and true and strong. Another caution. Jesus is not commending poverty for its own sake. Poverty in itself is not a blessing. Poverty in itself does not necessarily lead to spiritual death. Depths, rather. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit, though. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Four o'clock this afternoon, God willing, Stephanie and I will be on a plane to Cleveland and God willing, Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, Georgia and possibly uh, New York City and upper state New York in between. I'm not sure about that one. But as I was thinking of being in my hometown in Washington, D.C., I remembered a statue in a church on Massachusetts Avenue. I would drive by it almost every Sunday going to church. It was a statue of the outstretched figure of Jesus Christ and the arms were outstretched and his head was inclined. The only way you could look and can look at Christ full in the face is from underneath, from looking up. Love looking up, that's worship. That's praise. And that's what is facilitated, catalyzed by poverty of spirit. There is uh, one other attribute and I'll be quick with this, but blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, I don't see this or any of the Beatitudes as a different group of people, but a sequence and a journey. When we move from poverty of spirit, we move to the recognition of our rebellion, of our sinfulness, and our mournfulness over it. Uh, not all sorrows will be healed. Not all sorrows will be comforted. That is not the promise of these Beatitudes. In the second, the seventh chapter of Second Corinthians, Paul describes two different 
kinds of grief. There's worldly grief, and there's godly grief. And worldly grief arises over circumstances, over disappointments uh, in our job, or our circumstances, or our finances. But godly grief is grief which is awakened by our recognition, not only of our poverty of spirit, but of the occasion for it. Our rebellion, our sinfulness, our darkness, our turning things away. One of the interim pastors I had before coming to this church, I had a lay theologian that helped me a great deal, and he came up and he said, you know, you, you call upon people to believe in the gospel and to give their lives to Christ and to believe in Christ, but, you know, the Bible says you are to repent and believe in the gospel. Preach, you don't do a very good job at that part of it. <laughs> I agreed. I didn't then. I probably don't now, but... Regularly in the biblical text, it is repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what those who mourn over their sinfulness will be comforted. In Alan Payton's beautiful, moving novel, Cry the Beloved Country, an African pastor searches for his wayward son. He finds him and his heart is broken. He says these things about his son. This is mourning. He is a stranger. I cannot touch him. I cannot reach him. I see no shame in him. No pity for those he has hurt. Tears come out of his eyes, but it seems that he weeps only for himself, not for his wickedness, but for his danger. The man cried out, can a person lose all sense of evil? A boy brought up as he was brought up. I see only his pity for himself, he who has made two children fatherless. What's happened to our sense of evil, of wickedness in our culture today? We have little shame. We have no shame. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. I thought many times about James Anderson's question. Um, since he asked it and I had no answer, it's been decades now, and I have an answer now. It's mine. I don't know that it's right, but I think it is. I think the reason that Jesus spoke so much about the kingdom of God and the church has spoken about it so little is that for the church, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is that place where God's perfect reign and rule is seen and known and felt and touched. And for the church, the kingdom of God has walked in our midst. It has a personal face and a personal name. The kingdom of God for the church is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see a part of God's creation, an incarnate creation, but God's creation, which is alive and living under the Father's perfect reign and rule. We have replaced the kingdom of God with the personal name of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes, these confusing, bewildering, startling Beatitudes only make sense if the one who promises them is the one who is 
available to fulfill them. Jesus speaks the Beatitudes with authority because he says, I am the one who is the shepherd, the good one, who is leading you on the path which is the right one, which will lead you into the kingdom, which will lead you home, which you can trust. You can trust these startling Beatitudes because it is he, the shepherd, who speaks them. Living and holy God, we are astonished by your grace, but we recognize that even after we have been grasped by it, though there is nothing we can do to earn it, there is much that is to be done in its light. Father, help us to cry out of our poverty of spirit and the lament of our hearts over the darkness of our living. May that be the start of the path to the kingdom. As you have instructed us, it is in Jesus' name. Amen.